For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. You know her, you love her. And I, I don't think globalists or Twitter or YouTube or really anybody else likes her all that much. But, uh, you know, all the all like the non-lizard people really like her. Uh Courtney Turner is back for her third appearance. I'm very excited to talk to her. And there's uh, plenty of uh, good stuff to cover. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no there's definitely a group of people who don't seem to like me very much. <laughs> yeah, your, your Twitter kind of came by surprise because it, it's not like you ever posted anything that was provocative or seemingly that would really jerk the algorithm all that much. But then all of a sudden it was just out of nowhere and they it complete and i tried to like make several other accounts because people are like i guess i could get a vpn and that might i don't know now that i've just given away my secret i don't know <laughs> but uh but yeah they they were i mean even different numbers like they, they were just on to me it was but they lied because their claim was that it was covid misinformation that that's what they claimed they booted me for but I actually wasn't talking about COVID at all. I was actually talking about polio. I was responding to Monica Perez. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she had asked a question about polio and, you know, the pharmaceutical remedies. And you know, I had responded and I sent uh, a clip to, I, I haven't released his podcast, but I did two episodes with Sebastian Powell, who does really fantastic deep dives on uh you know, the medical industry in, in general, he does some really fantastic research and I, I put a link to his and yeah, I don't know that, that was it. That was it for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've, I'm, I'm kind of surprised I'd ever booted off Twitter for uh, medical misinformation because I, to my credit, I always do put studies and I usually cite my sources when it comes to uh, talking about COVID. So I'm, usually pretty you know the hammer on the area you know i don't feel like they care about that i mean i this was this was a linked source i had a a link to an article that Uh was yeah it just wasn't the approved opinion exactly yeah that that was the problem (laughs) yeah it's, it's really bizarre to me because um i think you and i were kind of talking about this um a little bit more when we were texting back and forth um they control so much of the dialect. And I heard you talk about this on another episode too. Um, 
where basically it's like you have this small window of allowable opinion. And especially this really got amped up over the last like six years where you can only have a conversation within this small window. And when you deviate outside of it, then you're either one way or the other. There's no, the Overton window is so narrow in our current political dialogue. And I don't like that because I'm a pretty open-minded person. I'm patient. I can talk to people that completely disagree with me in either direction and get along with them perfectly fine. But if you do this online, then the tensions are so much higher and the stakes are higher too, because you can just get depersoned off these platforms. Well, I think there's actually a really uh, conscious effort and a a very coordinated effort to keep people polarized. And I I don't think it's just online. I think online, it's just much more visible. But when you keep people polarized, I think it's a, a dialectical trap. And it, it is a way to create, a, you know, I, I, I'm actually about to release this podcast too, but we talked a lot about like the, the dividing line, um, you know, Plato's dividing line. When you, when you think about like a, you know, allegory of the cave and the intelligible realm, the unintelligible realm, and then the dividing line. I think that's a lot of what they try to do because when you have these two uh, polar opposites, then they essentially negate each other. And it, then, you know, it's a no-win zone. So you can have nuances. You can have a real genuine discourse. And that's really what they want because that's how they achieve the divide and conquer model. Yeah, and that's kind of the way they seem to like it is to have this kind of gridlock where um, you have okay groomer on one side and then, you know, cry more lib on the other side. And it's, or well, actually those are about the same sides, but you you kind (laughs) of know what I'm saying. Like either you're a Nazi or you're a complete and total fascist, right? There's no room in between, and mm-hmm. people don't like to sit down and have conversations about delicate topics that we can generally kind of come to some kind of consensus to through a conversation. But mm-hmm. um, I think what you say is completely correct, that it is basically those in control really want this to be as polarizing as possible, so that way yep. that never happens. Yeah, they want it as polarized as possible so that people, so that essentially both sides negate each other. That this is how you create that kind of destruction. Because if people were to really uh, have discourse and they were to deal with nuances, then you would, you, you might come to some sort of agreement. You might find that you actually have more in common than you realize. You might find that, uh, Rather than act, rather than compromising, which is what they want, they want compromising, which is really conciliation, and, and then one side wins, and then you know it essentially folds over, and the dialectic progresses, and everything moves left, and that that's what they want, as opposed to a really genuine discourse that might bring out of the box solutions. That's not what they want. They they don't they want this to be. I, I mean, I think they want to dehumanize things as much as possible, which is why online is where so much of the discourse is because people and because people are so atomized and they are so dehumanized, depersonalized, and that that's exactly what they want. So, yeah, and it's it's such a shame because I think the last time you were on, we were kind of talking about kind of what makes us human and why it's so important to have personal connections with people because. Yeah it's so much harder to deperson people or even like talk bad to people when you know this person personally and when you spend time with them, like the people I work with, we'll talk politics and stuff like that. And I disagree with them on a lot of stuff, but 
we can kind of work towards a conclusion that we both kind of see as a viable thing and, right. or at least agree on what's better than what we have now. And there's no room for that on Twitter, especially not in 140 characters or on Facebook or, uh, you know, and then if you look at a lot of the uh, titles and videos that people put out, typically they're clickbait and it's just to ratchet up tensions rather than say, Hey, this is what this is and have a more nuanced breakdown that actually informs people. So they can kind of, you know, get better, uh, a better idea of what they're discussing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think definitely we, and we do talk about this last time when you're in person, people, you know, the things that people would say online, most people would not say face to face when they're staring someone in the eye. That's just, you know, that's just human nature. They feel very emboldened and, uh, they're able to, you know, they, they suddenly have the confidence that they wouldn't have if they were having an interpersonal experience. But I think more than that, it, it does just dilute the discussion because it becomes so much easier to just have a an attack that wouldn't necessarily seem like an attack, but because it's condensed into 140 characters, it will feel that way. It's the back and forth. Whereas if you were to really explain what it is you're saying and give the justification behind it. And it's interesting that because when I think about this, I, I, you know, I, part of what I liked about Twitter was that I could essentially put out my short articles and, you know, but people would say, okay, break this down, make it a tweet. And so it's you, you, because people apparently can't read more than 140 characters. I don't know what's up with that, right. but so they can read it though. If you send put like, and I have done this, yeah, I've done maybe 30 tweets and it'll be broken down into 140 character uh, segments. And somehow that seems to be more palatable and more digestible for people. So, so that that's the, the benefit of it, but it, it is really hard to have a genuine discussion or genuine argument with anything that is condensed like that you know then you're you're really you're just uh spitting in you know back and forth you just right yeah verbal bullets if you will I, I was gonna say bullets and I was like well I don't want to say that but you know verbal bullets yeah <laughs> or, or written bullets <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's really what it feels like on Twitter when especially when you start getting into it with people and uh, my rule of thumb um, if I know the person, I'll engage with them for a while. Um, if I don't know you, then you get about two or three tweets. And if I just see you're not going to move or you're not going to engage in good faith, you get blocked. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that was kind of my policy. And I'm a very forgiving and patient person, but um, I'm just not going to put up with bullshit. And if I see that you're bullshit, then sorry, done, blocked. <laughs> I think I must have been so shadow banned that I was kind of in an echo chamber. I mean, I really, people talk about how toxic it is and I really didn't get a whole lot. I mean, every now and then I would get some trolls and it, it didn't really happen that often though, to be very honest. I, you know, mostly it was uh, people within like like-minded communities or reaching out to people who had, you know, podcast people. Um, yeah, it was more of that kind of a resource for me and a way to share uh, research really. That, that's really most of what I, I, you know, obviously I shared my podcast and I would share research that I had collected. And, uh, but I guess they, they, they didn't like the research that I was finding. So <laughs> there goes that. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, once again, you yeah. were um, off the plane and you didn't have the allowable opinion. So therefore they kind of had to come after you and, you know, shut that shit down. 
Um, yeah. Do you have anything you want to add there? Sorry. No, no dissenting uh, opinions allowed for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately <laughs> not. Um, the one thing I was texting you about earlier, and I'm really curious your opinion on this because um, I, I feel like not a lot of people talk about the potential downsides of Bitcoin. And I, I don't want to say it's a psyop, but at the same time, it, it's kind of like this is a digital currency that you cannot hold in your hands. It's on a computer. And yeah, people talk about cold wallets and stuff like this, but okay, what happens if the power grid goes down? And this could just be me being, you know, the old man shakes fists at sky. Um, now you see BlackRock buying into Coinbase, which is, I think, probably one of the larger um, apps that people use. And to they're going to use Aladdin in order. Yeah. As the, okay. uh, yeah. So um, I guess real quick, um, can you elaborate on who and what BlackRock is? I, I think we may have tapped on this one of the previous shows sure. and then kind of go into your thoughts on Bitcoin. Okay. Um, so BlackRock is a uh, asset management company, but they, the, the unique thing about BlackRock is that they kind of play both sides of the fence, that their investment as well as asset management, which you know, typically would be seen as kind of a conflict of interest, but for some reason it's perfectly fine for them. Um, <laughs> there, I was very, I, I, I'm, you know, I've been very aware of BlackRock because I actually went to school with the uh, founders uh, kids. So, you know, the, the oldest one was my year, uh, then there's a middle one. And then the, the youngest was actually my sister's year. So okay, how far back did their knees go? Were they like lizard people or were they normal? I'm sorry. People? How, how said, far back? <laughs> how far back did their knees go? Were they like lizard people or were they normal people? <laughs> that, that I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't speak to anything that in, in that regard, but uh, yeah. So I, so I remember like kind of, you know, when it was the early stages and it, it started out as a, uh, if I, I'm not sure if I'm, if I a hundred percent remember this, but uh, there was like a partnership with Blackstone uh, and they have since I think uh, separated, but so BlackRock, the thing that really concerned me more recently was that Trump had appointed them to essentially manage the uh, treasury and to buy down the, the federal debt. And so they were essentially became like managers of the Federal Reserve. And I don't know, to me, that just seemed like supposedly it's supposed to be federal. I know the Federal Reserve is actually a private company, uh, but that's a whole separate country conversation uh so it did, did seem though like it's a bit of a conflict of interest and you know they justified it like they're just asset managers you know they'll get their typical one percent uh but to me it did indicate that they were now uh very invested and they would have access to uh federal you know taxpayer dollars mm -hmm. um which doesn't seem uh, it it raises some questions. I think yeah, should be, people should be asking questions about it. It just doesn't seem quite kosher to me. Um, they, he is, you know, so Larry Fink is on the board of the World Economic Forum. He has made several uh, comments about how, you know, it, it's about that they're, it's about changing behavior. So this is, you know, that a lot of the policy, the economic policy is intended to change 
uh, individual behavior. Right. And they want to change this individual behavior, uh, driving it towards the ESGs. The ESG, for those who don't know, I'm not going to go into a whole thing. We can, but just, just to wrap, make it fairly quick for right now, it is essentially a Trojan horse for a social credit system that will come by way of the quote-unquote carbon credit system. And it really is a Trojan horse. That's what, it's a scam. It is a huge scam. So, but that's, uh, they're big drivers of this and they're buying up, you know, tons of single family homes, you know, that whole slogan, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Uh, they are largely invested. They're one of the largest, uh, you know, investment in, uh, or, you know, asset manager in the world. So it's essentially, and they own kind of everything. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to be quoted as saying it's like, oh no, it's not everything. They own a large majority of uh, corporations in, and it's really, it's BlackRock. It is uh, Vanguard and State Street, I would say are kind of the top three that own most of the corporations in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Vanguard owns a very large percentage of BlackRock. So does State, State Street. And when you go, so BlackRock is a public company, so you can, you know, dig into it pretty fairly easily, whatever is not, you know, hidden and uh, uh, whatever, whatever the, they, they haven't, you know, moved into shells and whatnot, you can really see, but Vanguard is private. But when you do dig a little bit deeper into Vanguard, you see that it does seem to be majority owned by the 13 families, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're known as the office families. So, yeah, so it, it's kind of a monopoly, which is, you, we have this illusion that we have all these independent corporations, which really are not all that independent because we right. see how much they get, uh, you know, bailed out and uh, they get, you know, incentives and uh, help and assistance and, you know, connections to uh, the government. And now to these, all these NGOs, which is, you know, I think in some ways much scarier because we're now not only seeing a, uh, you know, fascist takeover uh, in nationally, but we're seeing kind of globally. It's part of how they're able to execute this global fascist takeover. So that's a little bit about BlackRock. And I can go, I mean, BlackRock is a rabbit hole. I actually started to write an article on it and it was like, I could do a book. Um, <laughs> BlackRock is definitely a very, very deep dive. And I, I'm happy to do more on that. But I'll tell you some of my thoughts on Bitcoin. So I've always been a little bit skeptical of Bitcoin. And usually when I uh, tell people that I'm not, you know, I'm not like all gung-ho about it, the response I get is that I don't understand the math behind it. I'm like, no. <laughs> I know <laughs> right? exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my reaction is, well, that's not condescending at all. But Actually, I do understand the math behind it. And I also understand that anything that has a mathematical model can also be reverse engineered. So if there's a mathematical model to code it, then you can also, this is how hacking works, right? For instance. So I understand that it's very difficult and it might not be, uh, you know, worthwhile for let's say the government to hack into every person's or even criminals to go and hack into every single person's because because of the way the blockchain works it does build on each other and it, there's there's so many steps but what i do know is it is possible <laughs> uh contrary to belief it, it, it you know there's definitely a possibility of hacking i mean we saw that uh 
uh, what wasn't that couple who ha they hacked in and stole like over a million dollars or something? Mm -hmm. I think it was in, in California. Um, I don't remember the details of it, but I, I remember that that was, it was a big story because they basically stole a bunch of, you know, uh, crypto. And uh, so it is possible, but it's not possible if you have, uh, when you were talking about like the cold, uh, you know, wallet and that's, you know, anything that's on a hard drive, obviously you own that. That's, you know, that that's definitely going to be a lot safer. But of course, if there's an EMP attack and everything gets wiped out, you're, Anything that's on, I mean, it's on the hard drive, great. But then I don't, you, you know, if everything's what if the systems are wiped down, wiped out, then I don't know about that. Um, and that is a very real possibility. But what I more than any of that, what I do know is the global elite documents say their goal is to create a global digital currency. CBDC. Yeah, and they've already started working on it, and. There, uh, you know, I actually just had a conversation with my bankers the other day and they were saying how, so they, they were, because I was talking about, I, I'm on a platform, it's called Rockfin and they're great, you know, in terms of free speech, you know, I, you can really see the difference between a free speech platform and a censored <laughs> platform because I've right. been on there for a very short period of time and I've, you know, I mean, I, I, it's not like a, you know, huge following by other people's standards, but you know, to me, it's it's growing pretty quickly and it's growing very steadily and it's daily growing. So, you know, it says to me that when the chains are, that's just how free market works, right? So people want to find the information, they go and find it. And I really do appreciate that. But the way that they pay is in crypto. So I was a little bit concerned, uh, you know, it's RAE, uh, which can be converted into Ethereum, which I hear is one of the, uh, you know, better ones for a lot of reasons. I'm not like a crypto expert. So, you know, this is not advice to anybody. I certainly do not claim to be any kind of, I'm not a financial expert. I'm definitely not a crypto expert. Um, but what I will say is I think it's a better uh, thing to uh, transfer in interim. I don't think it's an yeah. investment piece just because, so uh, where I was going with that with my, uh, I was talking about because I was saying how I had some concerns and I wanted to know their advice. And the, the big thing they did tell me was that as of 2023, they're looking to tax it. And I think that that's how the elites are going to start because once they can tax something, they have a lot more control and leverage over regulating it um, and controlling it essentially. And I think that's going to be their first step is, you know, taxing it. And if you read the, the all the white paper documents, that's really what they say. They want to take us into a cashless society where they can put us under a global UBI and uh, that's tied to an AI-run uh, social credit carbon slash carbon credit system. And I do think that these digital currencies are the key to doing that. And I think that what they're going to try and do, I think they've already done it in China where, you know, they uh, consolidate so you can only have one type. And I think that's kind of where they're going. Like right now, they're allowing everybody to have the illusion of the diversity and being decentralized. And they're going to slowly uh, regulate further and further so that they can start to consolidate. So I, that's my concern with Bitcoin. I don't think that it's a long-term kind of uh, investment strategy. I don't trust it as that. Uh, I know I might get a lot of pushback on that. And I might be wrong. Who knows? But just knowing what the plans of the elites are, to me, it doesn't seem super stable in that regard. But uh, I do think that it could be a good short-term kind of transfer leverage for people because I think diversification is always 
a good strategy when it comes to really anything. I mean, but especially resources, you never want to have all your eggs in one basket. So, so those are some of my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Um, I, I guess we'll kind of start with a uh, Bitcoin there first. Um, the thing that concerns me about crypto and Bitcoin is that, as you said, the desire of the globalists is to get a central bank digital currency. Okay, well, why would they want that? Because if they can tie that to your ESG or your social credit score, yeah. then it's much easier to control what you do, right? Mm -hmm. And it was kind of funny. You also mentioned behaviors and yep. some of the, the information that people are seeking out. Okay. What's going on, guys? Um, we're going to take a quick break from the show to tell you about the show sponsors and the way that you can support me and this podcast. Um, I'm sponsored by Axe and Sledge. Won't really focus in here, but uh, right here in my hand, I have their um, the grind, which is essential amino acids and hydration. Um, feel free to check it out. Um, this is your mom's sweet peach. They have some awesome flavors and awesome names. They also have multivitamins, fat burners, creatine, beta-alanine, beta um, all sorts of different supplements to help you get all jacked and tan and help you become a person more full of uh, liberty and health as this show is about. So um, if you want to support me and support this podcast, then feel free to go to axandsledge.com and check out um, all their great supplements there and use code Matovic10, that's M-A-T-O-V-C-I-K-1-0 at checkout for a little discount and to let them know I sent you their way. All right, everybody. Thanks. Now back on to the show. If they can have a central bank digital currency, and they can use YouTube algorithms or different video platform algorithms to mm -hmm. show you certain things. And then your social credit score goes up. And then this, I don't want to throw too much at you, but um, so basically- You can, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with it. No, no, <laughs> Whatever I'll, you want to throw at me. <laughs> so basically if they can feed you this information, then you can comply because you're only seeing what's in, a, in the approved opinions, right? And then mm -hmm. if you have a central bank digital currency, then you can manipulate people's behavior, especially through interest rates. And I was talking to my brother about this last night, but yeah. it's really interesting to consider interest rates because mm -hmm. when you see a low interest rate environment, people don't save because their money doesn't grow. But in yeah. a higher interest rate environment, people save more because they mm -hmm. see their money growing. Well, mm -hmm. we've really introduced you know, such a bad situation for people like my age, right? Because I'll be 28 this year. Um, mm -hmm. people my age don't save because interest rates have been 0% for so long. And this is so yep. good for, you know, the billionaire and the corporations because they can borrow money, same as cash. But then people yep. like me who should save, we're discouraged from saving because inflation's higher than the interest rates. So therefore money decays faster than it actually grows. Absolutely. And now you have, you raise basically a whole generation of people that now, um, just make very, very poor decisions. They don't think about long-term and they don't save. And, mm -hmm. you know, once again, now we're starting to get pushed towards cryptos and pushed towards ESG. So there's so much manipulation with people. And I, I really like the one episode you did. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but um, it was about, she talked a lot about MK Ultra and how porn mm -hmm. and a lot of um, different stuff that was going on early on mm -hmm. in the pandemic. Rachel Wilson. Yeah. 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 She, I followed her on Twitter and I would love to have her on. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'm going to arrange that sometime soon. But anyways, it, like a lot of this stuff seems like an extension of MK Ultra and basically manipulating mm -hmm. people to certain behaviors. Sure. And they do it through different incentives that people don't necessarily think about. Mm -hmm. You're you're saying that you think some of this financial behavior is driven by like an MK Ultra type of operations it, it definitely to me it seems like it, it's something that is 
encourage it. Like it benefits the globalists in so many different ways and the heads of corporations, because once again, they can borrow money, same as cash. So that way mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about paying out ridiculous mm-hmm. amounts of loans and right. the, the debt's all short term. So it's not sure. like they can't just roll it over. And then it teaches younger people to, to rather than delay gratification, you can mm-hmm. just spend your dollars right now and right. you completely crush the middle class, right? Because oh, now yeah. you have people that work the gig economy, so they're never going to have a retirement. They're going to have to work until they die. And yep. then on top of that, you also have women. And, and then they're going to be replaced by the robots. So Right, right. That. So I, I know that that's a whole lot, but I, I guess kind of take that from what you will. Sure. So I don't know that there needs to be uh, an MK Ultra style operation to, uh, you know, implement these results or, you know, affect these results because that they they really can do it just by policy and by uh you know yeah like you said with you know manipulating the interest rates which they always do um i think they can do a lot of it through just propaganda you know this uh kind of create that it's culture creation so in that regard i mean yes like the cia is very involved in culture creation but mm-hmm. i i don't know that they need to uh you know, those are very elaborate kind of, uh, uh, usually there's a lot of, I mean, MK Ultra itself is, you know, the operations typically are centered around uh, a lot of uh, drugging and trauma-based mind control uh, that, you know, it's very specific kinds of uh, weaponization. Sure. Whereas I think what's going on with the, you know, the economy, uh, I, I do agree with you. They're trying to create this uh, culture where it, it, there's many facets of it, though. When you're try- So I, I can kind of go through each thing there. So, if, you know, yeah. when you talk about the like the gig economy, this again goes, you know, it's kind of to this, uh, you know, the political warfare approach because they're, they're going to prop up this gig economy, as you said, and this generation of gig economy. And then they're going to tear it down because they're going to be replaced by uh you know, this, this is theoretically, but they've said this. They've said that they want to have uh, robots who will now take on these service type positions because the humans won't be needed and they can automate it. It'll be cheaper. And this will be a way that the robots can be uh, effective in, uh, you know, increasing the GDP and they can have an active role in that. And I, I think that's part of their uh, transhuman kind of transition so there, there's that aspect of it. And, you know, obviously I can't predict the future. I don't, the, these are just plans. These are just, mm-hmm. but this is what they have told us. So I do think that that's the political warfare game is to prop up that kind of uh, uh, economy and then to tear it down uh, or tear down the people essentially. And in terms of this, uh, you know, culture of people who aren't saving. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely benefiting, you know, it's a fiat, fiat system and, uh, you know, I think they think that their time is kind of running out and they are really ramping things up. And so they're, they, they want to capitalize, you know, pun intended on the word, but as much as possible uh, in the time that they have, because I, I think they know that, you know, they, they are being exposed and I, they're not sure how, how much they can get away with for how much longer. So I, I do think, you know, that's a, people keep saying we're winning and it, it doesn't always feel that way. But I think the fact that they keep ramping up the plans is is an indication of such. I think it does show that they know that. And it's just a matter of people not complying, people realizing what the game is and opting out of this game. 
So, yeah, I, I do think there's, you know, there are some other kinds of uh, aspects in terms of when you say like an MK Ultra style. Uh, I do think that there are other types of uh, psyops that are at play that definitely feed into the economy and they definitely, you know, feed into the younger generation. I, you know, your generation, then Gen Z, I would say, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing this major push for a kind of a, you know, like brave new world type scenario where people are being numbed out. And I, I've seen, I, 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 one of the posts I did was about uh, how they put psychedelics, a push for uh, psychedelic research into. Okay, yeah, I'm really the, glad you're covering this because I wanted to talk about this. this. This is something that's kind of been on my mind, but I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, yeah. I'm just really glad you're getting to this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I'll just say quickly that, you know, they're putting it into the defense bill. And I, I've gotten into many arguments with people because people always point to, well, but, you know, it, it's great for PTSD. And, you know, my response is that, you know, there's always just because something can have an agenda that may be a nefarious agenda possibly attached doesn't mean that there's no benefits to, you know, the substance that they're uh, promoting. It doesn't mean that... The, for instance, that psychedelics have never benefited anybody. You know, I, and something can be, it, it can have both sides. You know, I mean, I think I used the example of a, like a glass of wine, you know, or more than a glass of wine, you know, they have many benefits and yet we know it's a toxin, you know, or I, yoga is another really great example. I and mean, yoga is essentially, it's a pagan worship practice. I don't think a lot of people know that. And I'm not saying that all people who practice yoga, I mean, I was a yoga teacher. I actually did talk partner yoga. I don't, I definitely didn't know that at the time. Most people don't know that. And it doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't mean that they're, and it certainly does not mean yoga doesn't have any beneficial properties. We know yoga does wonderful things for the body and can be incredibly healing for, you know, the mind, the emotion, the and physicality. So I, uh, I, my only point in bringing it up is that I think it is very interesting that there's such a hard push for it. Firstly, I brought up PTSD because that's what the argument I keep hearing. Most of the research done on PTSD was done on soldiers. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that it's not real. That doesn't mean that you know there there couldn't be beneficial uh, properties to healing it with uh, some of these psychedelic uh, treatments. However, a lot of a lot of research that is done on soldiers does then get weaponized. And one of the really key examples of that would be shell shock therapy that was done under the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. And they actually named the Tavistock, it was initially named the uh, Wellington House. Then it'd be, well, the, the, the more like uh, colloquial name for it was actually the British Propaganda Bureau. That was what it was called because it was specifically designed to create propaganda to garner acquiescence for people to join the war, to engage in World War One. Because it turns out that people actually don't want to go to war. It's not really their favorite thing to do. Uh, the idea of shocking i know you know the the notion that people might die and they might lose loved ones and lose family and uh, that innocent casualties might occur is just not all that appealing to people so there really needed to be tremendous propaganda to get people on board so that was initially what it's called and then it changed to uh the Tavistock Clinic before it became Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, but the name Tavistock came from uh, someone who was related to uh, Rockefeller who donated money for a building, a Tavistock building, so that they could specifically do shell shock research on soldiers. 
And that later became the foundation for um, trauma-based mind control. So that's an example of how some of these uh, research can be weaponized. And with the, so I'm not saying that that's the case here, but it just, you know, looking through history, it is very possible. But I think it is important to look at the fact and ask questions as to why it's being put into a defense bill. Because I always say when you put the D in front of it, it essentially gives them a black ops covert budget to do car whatever they want. They get carte blanche and it under, they don't have to account for it or answer to it. You know, it's ARPA was originally, it became DARPA because they in order to have a uh, opacity so they didn't have to uh, be transparent and that's essentially what putting the d in front of it does so i think it is interesting that they're putting it into a defense bill i don't know what it has anything to do with defense is uh <laughs> you know that to me does not make any sense at all not that these bills often make sense that you know we spend trillions of dollars on things that uh, have nothing to do with the bill with what the bill is supposedly uh purporting but I think there's also another really interesting parallel to they recently came out with all this uh, revealing that SSRIs were founded on faulty research because there was no evidence to support that there was any that causation of, you know, chemical imbalance to, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, the things that SSRIs within prescribed for then now they're coming out with this uh, research in there they're talking about that but there was a huge media blitz about it which is just kind of interesting because most of this research was done in the 90s and the early 2000s i mean there were books written about it in like you know 2008 2000 a lot of research and even in the 90s and so why now are they talking about it but what i think could be interesting is that they might now have a uh, kind of a smooth transition to these, you know, microdosing therapies or, uh, you know, some sort, some variation of weed. And I, I think they've really gone out of their way to normalize it. Uh, you're, you're hearing so much in the culture of people talking about, you know, everyday type usage of these types of uh, drugs. And they also have, patented some variations of weed, which is very interesting to me because how can you patent something that's naturally occurring that's not legal, legally, that's not within the legal purview of a patent. <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense. It's actually, it's like antithetical to what a patent is. So I think that's kind of curious. And I'm wondering if that's going to happen with some of these other things too, like, you know, some of the other psychedelics that they're talking about. I don't know. I'm sorry. That was a lot. But I, I think, I, you know, to me, it does indicate that they're going in a direction for some sort of culture creation uh, that would be very beneficial, like a Brave New World type scenario where people are kind of numbed out. And yeah. Yeah, no, that definitely seems to be the situation. I always made the joke and I've never smoked weed in my life and I probably never will. I just mm -hmm. I, I can't stand the smell of it. Um mm -hmm. I know so many kids that literally, I would say, smoke themselves retarded, where all they freaking did was smoke weed, and they, mm -hmm. they would tell you about it all the time. 
And then, of course, oh, the first thing they say is, oh, I know tons of successful people who smoke weed. Okay, well, then, why, you know, what, what's your excuse? And a lot of these people were fucking really bummy fucking people. So mm-hmm. um, I, I almost kind of wonder if this is by design because so back in 2020 when you had, I think it was, or um, not 2020, but Rachel, uh, your guess, if that's the one mm-hmm. I'm referring to correctly. Um, she was talking about how Pornhub was giving out free subscriptions to people. And this sounds so bizarre at first, but then the way that she kind of teased it all out really made sense. So uh, hopefully everyone checks out this or uh, that episode because it was, mm-hmm. it was really, really interesting. Um, She's awesome. Yeah. 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 So um, you have so many people, marijuana is like normalized now. Right. And mm-hmm. then there's tons of people that go on Joe Rogan and talk about doing ayahuasca in the woods and that's getting normalized. And I still have a stigma to like pretty much all drugs. I mean, I still drink, mm-hmm. prob- not like, you know, get completely shit faced, but I, I enjoy alcohol. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I don't know when you see people just smoking weed to the point where they can't function. And then, you know, we're normalizing doing acid and shit like that. Um, to me, I've heard people make the arguments that you've kind of seemed to rebut and push back against like, Hey, maybe helpful for PhD for PTSD. I'm sympathetic to that, but um, mm. I think there is a downside to destigmatizing things like drugs or mm. this, you know, live and let live free sex for everybody. Um, this kind of hedonistic approach to mm-hmm. pleasure in your life. I think there's severe downsides to that because um, this kind of goes back to behavior, like we were talking about earlier, where it's basically people aren't able to delay gratification you know, basically wait for the greater good later on and greater good in like literal, like you'll actually benefit from this. When you, when you bring up hedonistic, I mean, that was brave new world, right? It was all a uh, pleasure driven people opt in. And I, I think that it's really, so I going back to the, you know, the economy, I'll, it all, it, this ties together, but I had sent this thing out. I knew people got very upset because, you know, it can't, I couldn't, confirm the veracity of this transcript. To be fair, I'm not the only one sharing this. Uh, You know, people have done YouTube videos on it. Somehow they don't get taken down. But, you know, Um, anyway, I don't know if this is real, if it's not real. What I do know is the elite plans point in this direction. So I don't know this particular instance of the transcript is actually those details are accurate. I have no idea. But my point in sharing it was not to say that this is, you know, the gospel and that you should take this word for word. My point in sharing it was that they were talking about the global UBI. And I was saying that they're, this is what they do. They in, make things so that it's enticing to opt in. And it is a desire pleasure driven. So they're creating culture, people who, you know, they're locked down and then they tell them that, well, you know, it'll be so convenient. Now you don't have to get up and get dressed and you can play video games and, you know, then you can do work whenever you want. And so now now they're going to convince people they're going to, I think they're, they're trying really hard to collapse the system so that people feel desperate, but then, hey, you can get a UBI and you won't have to work at all and you can you know just play the video games and you know you'll you'll get a, an allowance essentially <laughs> and I, my message was really do not opt in because no matter how good this sounds this is not going to be good and 
even if you like that aspect of it, and to be fair, there are people who do not need any kind of incentive. They just think that that's a great way of life and they'd be happy to opt in now. Even if you thought that, you have to understand that this is the first step for them to roll out the rest of their plans. But I, I wanted to bring that up because it is tied to the, when I was saying like Brave New World, it's very tied to this hedonistic uh, pleasure, uh, desire driven uh, incentives. And that it, I think that's how they're able to, it's the same thing with this, the, the metaverse that they want to create, right? They, they do this through, you're all, and this is using the trauma-based mind control in order to then can break you down and condition you so that you, you, so that your desire for these things then become that much more heightened. We're now offering you this solution because you've been atomized. You are now isolated and disconnected. And but hey, don't worry, we can give you this great uh tool that'll make you feel like you're connected and you know, you won't even have to go out there and battle your social anxiety. You know, you can just sit in front of a screen and it's all going to come to you. And I, you know, they talk about these, uh, that I pay, Facebook has like a patent on a wrist wearable that will read your mind. And of course they couch it so nicely, you know, it's that, well, you know, this way, if someone's paralyzed, they could still type. They don't have to type. It'll just read your thoughts. Well, I, I don't feel so great about Facebook reading my thoughts. Sorry. Right. I, I'd like to keep those in my head, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, a little privacy, please. <laughs> but uh, I'd like to be able to articulate them and, you know, work them through before I have them given over to some portal. Thank you very much. But that's what they do. I, so I think that you, you hit on something very, uh, very, very poignant <laughs> and very powerful because it is this uh, hedonistic aspect that they're tapping into in order to create incentives for people to opt in so they don't then it's not it's not by force people will opt in and then they can it lays the foundation and they it, they're masters of incrementalism so they little by little and then they can execute more of their plans right so something interesting and i i i'm always mentally going back and forth on this but uh when you look at trump in 2020 and how many stimulus checks he sent out and how proud he was and yeah. his base is supposed to be the kind of people that say, hey, you put in your day's work, you get a day's pay, and then right. you're good, right? Yeah. I cannot tell you how many of those people, and I, I tell people all the time, I'm a freaking mechanic, right? I work on cars every single day. I bust my knuckles on wrenches and you name it, right? Yeah. These people were so excited to get their $1,400, right? As the people who work their ass off and want their social security because they put... You know, they put their time in, they put their money in. They were so excited for the stimulus checks to come around. So it, it's, it kind of taps on what you were saying earlier is that if sometimes it doesn't really matter who's doing the pulling of the strings because people will still be all for it. And it's really scary to think like, if we got to the point where there was a CBDC and they gave you your allowance and you could just go to your pod and sit in the metaverse and you can transcend your human being, right? Yeah. Then so many people would just go right along with it and wouldn't know what it was like to literally just walk outside their door, take their dog for a walk or ever remember what it was like to be at a barbecue restaurant outside and smell the, the wood chips and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I, that is a really interesting point about uh, you would think that that base is 
something that would rally against it. And I, I mean, I definitely was not in favor of it because right. the, the sacrifice for the illusion, the illusion that you were getting so much, and it really wasn't so much. And it, people would have made more if they were able to keep their businesses open and keep their jobs and continue to work. That would have been so much more than, than the crumbs that they were given in exchange. And the sacrifice that they had to make as a result, many people lost their jobs completely. Many people lost their businesses that they had, you know, in some cases taken generations to build up. You know, many, many people lost their lives. They, you know, the suicide rates went up drastically. The abuse, uh, you know, both the, in terms of uh, physical abuse as well as substance abuse increased dramatically. So this, this was not a win-win for, you know, a few hundred or a thousand whatever dollars. That's really not worth the cost of what it was endured. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to kind of tackle or uh, tag along to that, when I listened to your conversation with uh, Jay Dyer and James Lindsay, which was fantastic. And I, I, I was kind of mad. I was walking my dogs. I'm like, man, I have so much stuff I want to take notes on. But the one thing that kind of- You can listen again. <laughs> right, right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the one thing that kind of stuck with me and I had thought about is um, this kind of ties back to behavior. Um, when it comes to the you'll own nothing, you'll be happy, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody leases vehicles now. Okay. So why mm -hmm. is that significant? Because you don't yeah. ever own the vehicle, right? Yeah. GM owns the vehicle, Ford owns the vehicle, yeah. Mazda owns the vehicle. Yeah. You're just using it and right. You still pay them exorbitant amounts of money. Yep. You never own it. And it's getting you kind of in the psychological idea where, where it's like, okay, well, I don't have to own this. Okay. So and you see all sorts of payment plans coming out, vendor financing through yeah. everybody now. Um, it, it really ties back to behavior and teaching people to be more consumers and yep. be more hedonistic. And then once again, you don't own anything at the end of the day. It's not your car. It's Ford's car. I, yeah. I mean, I will argue that, you know, even owning, I, I mean, they want to make it so that everybody really rents and they don't even own homes, but even people who own homes in a lot of ways, that's kind of an illusion. Think about the yeah. property taxes that people pay on their <laughs> yeah. homes, right? Uh -huh. What happens if you default on those property taxes? You, you lose your home, right? So essentially the state owns your home. Mm -hmm. You're basically paying rent you know, in form of taxes to your home. I, I mean, I have a huge issue with property taxes, to be really honest. I don't think that the, they're, they're, they're in a lot of ways that they, that's, uh, it's very, at best, unethical. And uh, I think it's really problematic because that's essentially what it is. It gives you this illusion that you own your, you own your property and you don't because you, you have to pay these taxes on it and you default, if you default, you lose it. And I know people who that's happened to, where they've, you know, spent their whole lives or, you know, or in some cases, again, you know, families, it was generation passed down and then they lost their home because of the property taxes. So I, I think there's something very flawed about that, but it, it, it's essentially the culture they're trying to create, you know, that you will own nothing, you'd be happy. And it is, a, and it is a culture of consumerism and an illusion that people feel like you know, when they lease a car, they don't think about that. Most people don't. I'm, I'm not going to speak for everyone, yeah. but a lot of people don't think about the fact they don't really own that car. Mm -hmm. You know, they, 
in a, in a way, we, it's even happened with our phones, right? The people just trade it in and the upgrades and they're, they're still paying off the plan and you know, they really never even own their phone. <laughs> you know, the, it, it, so that's the, and, and what it has become is it's not just a consumerism, but it's this, uh, it, it's constant recyclability. So things don't have value. There's, there's the quality of things has deteriorated so much as a result because there's no need to, it's not meant to last. It's, it's in a, a five-year throwaway. Yeah, it's a planned obsolescence. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, why would you, why would you invest in making something uh, substantial that has a planned obsolescence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting. And now you see all these car companies coming out with extended warranties um, because once again, you know, if, if you don't own it, then who cares? You know, you yeah. can just trade it in within the uh, next couple of years. So one idea that I was kind of kicking around since listening mm -hmm. to uh, a lot of your stuff this past week is I do feel like getting back in touch with our bodies and doing resistance training and getting closer with our families and our mm -hmm. collectives that are immediately near us and the people yeah. that are close to us is the best way to combat this. And it, it sounds a little naive and optimistic, but the thing about lifting weights, and mm -hmm. I always think about this, that it's always objective, right? It's yes mm -hmm. or no. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I say that too. Right. The 45-pound the plates on the end of the bar, whenever you go to pick it up, it's either you do or you don't, right? Totally. That is objective. <laughs> and then when you do it, you own that, right? That was your yeah. body overcoming struggle. And I think that's kind of what they want to take away from you is your independence and your ability to say that you did something and that you own something yeah. because then at that point, then you could just be kind of tied along, right? Once again, in the metaverse, consuming whatever. And then that kind of goes on to transhumanism where you can transcend owning things and be something else. You can be whatever you want, but the fact is that we should want to be unique beings and I'm yeah. not necessarily religious, although I'm, I'm starting to... I don't want to say change my mind on it, but it's something I kind of dance around a lot. It's not something I've mm -hmm. dug into a lot, but mm -hmm. it's something always on my mind. Um, mm -hmm. We're blessed to be the individuals that we are. And your story, which you told on the first time you were on, is absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating. I love when you tell mm -hmm. it. It's, it's just really cool to hear that you had such kind of unique happenstances and you wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't essentially for the circumstances mm -hmm. you went through. But I mean, really that's for all people is that sure. the circumstances you went through in your life kind of made you who you are today, right? Yeah. Um, my mom had cancer three times and obviously I'd never wish that on her, but her overcoming that and seeing her dedication and work ethic through suffering that made me realize, okay, well, there's no reason for me not to kick as much ass as I possibly can. Of course. So, um, just kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with all of that. I think that, you know, for starters, they they do want to take away uh, any kind of uh, solvency, any kind of independence, any type of merit. Uh, so they're, you know, with certainly with, uh, like you said, I always, I always say that as well, you know, it's very concrete, it's very quantifiable. And, you know, you, you pick up a weight or you don't, you know, you make the lift, you don't, it's a, uh, there's no middle ground there. And I, there's a huge sense of empowerment and accomplishment in you know, getting to the place where you can do that. And that builds a foundation for you to take on other challenges. So I think they absolutely don't want that. Uh, they are trying to take away 
we, I mean, we, all we have to do is look around us, but, and they're, they're creating more incentive for people to be more and more sedentary, more unhealthy. Mm. And that, because that creates more dependency, that means they can come in with their solutions that somehow create more problems. And then they have more solutions for, um, and then the cycle just seems to perpetuate magically. And it just seems to magically work in their favor, very interestingly enough, but <laughs> people get sicker and they get richer. So, you know, that's definitely, I do believe largely by design. I I think in terms of, I always say we have a one in 400 trillion chance of being born. And I think that people really don't value life the way that they would if they understood that and knew what a miracle it was to be here. We are all a miracle. <laughs> you know, the, the odds of us being here are just really, really stacked against us. So I think that that is, again, part of this culture creation. Uh, I think that they want to dehumanize and devalue life. I mean, they, they say it pretty clearly, you know, we're the useless eaters and we need to be reduced. So uh, that I think has permeated though, unfortunately, and you bring up religion at I think regardless of whether you're a religious person or not, this persecution of religion and this uh, dilution of a, a metaphysical or spiritual worldview has lent itself very much to a devaluing of life because it makes things very materialistic. It puts things into a kind of concrete, literal, uh, random, having no uh, bigger context or meaning. And so that it's harder to feel or find a sense of purpose in that. It's harder to find, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying there aren't wonderful people who are very concrete materialists. I mean, there certainly are, and they're very happy people who, you know, may have a strong moral code, but it's a much harder thing to do when you don't have that because there is, it's not transcendental. So what is it that you're aspiring to? What are you aspiring for? Uh, what gets you through the hardships that are inevitable. So, you know, I always say that I think that we are all endowed with, I do think we're all unique, but we are all blessed with unique gifts. And I think it's incumbent upon each of us to discover those and harness those so that we can be of contribution. And I think that when, if we were all to do that, it would be a very beautiful kind of an ecosystem that we balance each other out, we balance out our weaknesses, you know, those strengths help to uh, cultivate. And, I, you know, I think that that, it, again, if you have a, a more spiritual kind of worldview, then that is kind of by design. And I think there's a lot of evidence on that side, but, you know, that that's my belief. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it's been something that's just been on my mind a lot lately because, it, it does feel like we're almost in a spiritual battle and we are kind of t yeah it, it ties to kind of like the abortion debate and I, I like just saying the word abortion has this derogatory notion to it and you and i are both pro-life but um when you see how just polarizing this specific topic is mm -hmm. it, it really kind of makes you think like wow this is it has to be by design because these are I, it's just not a conversation you can have with people because the way that i think you and i both look at it is you're responsible for your actions and the consequences thereof mm -hmm. right you voluntarily mm -hmm. have sex with somebody and then by undergoing that you accept the potential consequences of that mm -hmm. um right. 
and I think it actually, I didn't even think about this till right now, but it really benefits um, this ESG and the globalist worldview for people to have this responsibility taken away from them. Oh, yeah. So when you make them pro All responsibility. Right. Then you're taking away their agency, which is, once mm-hmm. again, key to making people not feel uniquely human. Yeah, no, they, I mean, they want to take away personal responsibility because that that's and that's why uh, the victimhood culture is so pervasive. Uh, that's absolutely by design, but more victimized people feel uh, the, the one more divisive they can be. And therefore, you know, their divide and conquer game is uh, in full, full force, but also the more dependent they are because they're less empowered to take to take responsibility and to, you know, bent to move forward and take a positive action to uh, improve their own lives. And their, and as a result of doing that, then the lives of those around them. But uh, in the abortion conversation is interesting because I, I think I had initially come at it from a very kind of logical perspective like that. I still agree with that, that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you take personal responsibility for yeah. your action. Actions have consequences. And uh, if you're old enough to engage in those you know, actions, then you should be old enough to consider the consequences and to consider if those are consequences that may be something you want to take on. But I, I think it really does tie to the bigger spiritual battle because, you know, this this is, when you look into the history of abortion, you know, it was founded by eugenics, eugenesis. Mm-hmm. You know, Pan, Planned Parenthood was Margaret Sanger, uh, Bill Gates' father. You know, it was always designed to reduce the population. And when you look into the roots of it, they weren't shy about it. I mean, they wrote about it. So this is very clearly designed to uh, reduce the population. And unfortunately, they were targeting very specific populations, which is why a lot of these Planned Parenthood uh clinics are in you know, inner cities. It, this, this is not a coincidence. So uh, the abortion conversation, and then when you learn that Roe v. Wade was predicated essentially on a lie, I now understand why it is that uh, the left is always screaming about instances of rape. You know, it never made sense to me. I'm like, it's just such a small percentage of the population. You don't make a law for the outlier. Right. Like, this is, you know, absolutely kind of absurd. It's actually it's actually ludicrous that that's their argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not to say I don't have compassion for somebody who might might have been raped and had that experience. This is not about lack of compassion, but it's it's from a uh, the perspective of an argument. It is not a very sound argument because you're talking about such a rare instance. But now I understand that Roe actually, I actually didn't know this, but Roe lied. <laughs> she lied about being raped. And that was a large factor in the case. And she admitted it. She admitted it on national television that she lied about being raped. She was never raped. So uh, the whole Roe v. Wade was actually predicated largely on a lie. And uh, I think if people knew that, they would have had a, not now because people have been so conditioned, but I think at the time it would they would have had a very different perspective on all of it. But it does really point to a, a very significant spiritual battle. I mean, the satanic temple is using it as a justification. They're saying that it is a, you know, a, a ritual, a sacrifice for them. And uh, according to the Religious Freedom Act of 1991, they're protected to have their religious uh, ritualistic sacrifices aka abortions and uh, that so they're legally protected to do so under that but the fact that the satanic temple is using that as an argument i I think is a pretty strong indication that we are in the midst of very deep 
spiritual battle, you know, and, and I, I make the joke, not like a ha ha kind of joke, but you know, you look at the, uh, you, you look in the Bible at the, uh, sacrifice to Moloch didn't, didn't work out so well for them back then. So, you know, but, but it's a really great idea. We should try it again just for good measure, you know? So I, I, I am joking, but, and not like, you know, ha ha, I'm being kind of facetious, but I, I just think that it's, such a strong indicator that this is a spiritual battle because that is what's come. And I think, again, it's an indicator that we are winning because, right, because of all of the reversals. There was an interesting case in Kansas, though, but when I looked at the way that it was worded, it was so incredibly confusing. Like, wow, who worded this one? I mean, it was really hard to say when you said yes or no, which was the answer you vote for. You, you almost had no idea if you were voting pro-abortion, anti-abortion. But again, this also points to just the manipulation and distortion of language too, because right, they 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 word it pro-choice. What how how is this pro-choice? This is that's that's like a euphemism. Mm -hmm. it, it's not. You're pro-abortion, which is pro-murder. And and I really do think it is. And I think when you and I know people feel differently than I do about it, and that's fine. But to me, why is it that when you you know, kill a, when, when you, yeah, a pregnant woman, uh, if you shoot a pregnant woman, it, it's considered a double oh, homicide. Oh. It's not considered a single homicide. Well, so how come in that case, it's considered a life, but when they want to abort it, it's not a life. How is it that, you know, certain states right now are advocating for post-birth abortion? Mm. That is a, a life. Can we, agree that once a child is born, they are a child that is a human life. So how are we still calling it an abortion? I think this is a very, I, I think it's very significant, just the manipulation of language. This is where it becomes very Orwellian or, you know, postmodernist philosophy, Derrida. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, it's simply true, and my um, <laughs> a couple of my friends who are pretty religious, uh, they say people act as demons, and they say, well, not literal demons, but if they were demons, <laughs> is, is there any discernible difference for a lot of these people? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's also a really interesting point, too, because when we were talking back about, uh, like, the psychedelics, and uh, there's, I do think there really is a spiritual battle currently, and you don't have to be religious to acknowledge that other people worship Satan, other people worship Lucifer, other people uh, believe and worship dark forces. So you yourself don't have to be seeped in a, a spiritual worldview to acknowledge that other people do and other people are. So when like, and that's like you had brought up ayahuasca. And again, not to say that nobody's ever had a positive experience from it. There certainly are people and there are people who worked with the therapists and had, you know, healing experiences from it even, but you're opening things up and we know so little about we are three-dimensional beings. I, I often talk about how I have spent an inordinate, embarrassing amount of time trying to fathom a tesseract. It is not possible. I'm a three-dimensional being. I cannot fathom what a Tesseract is. I've watched, like, stared at simulations online. Uh, as a kid, I used to, like, just fantasize about it. I really can't, though. I can kind of intellectualize, maybe, but I can't fathom it. And that's because I'm a three-dimensional being. I know they, they're probably the more uh, attainable, uh, digestible 
example for people is the the flatlanders you know that's the two-dimensional beings in a three-dimensional world because we live in a three-dimensional world but i actually really tried to understand the tesseract so i say this just to say that we don't have much of an understanding about dimensions beyond what we know I mean, there is so much that we don't know and there is entire it's entirely possible that there are dimensions far beyond our understanding and that there are beings who you know either are interdimensional or that they are capable of crossing dimensions and if that's the case you're opening up channels you're opening up portals that create that possibility I, i'm not saying that i'm you know that this is fact i'm just saying this is entirely possible when we don't know enough to confirm or deny and so you know these these rituals and sacrifices that are made and we we have concrete evidence that they do do ritual you know sacrifices uh these spiritual kinds of practices like uh in some cases it could be uh psychedelics it could be uh portals that's you know cern is opening or you know we don't know but I do think we're in the midst of a spiritual battle and it's entirely possible that there are dark forces at play. But the, the converse to that is that it's very possible there are light forces opposing it as well. That that would imply the battle, right? It is uh, good versus evil. So Yeah, it's really hard for me to kind of look at everything that's going on in the world and get the, the not beyond a 50,000 foot view, but the whole earth view of what's the totality of our situation? Because, mm -hmm. you know, most people want to say everything's getting better consistently, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it's it's not necessarily a linear thing, right? Or at least I don't mm -hmm. think it is. There's probably dips and then yeah. dramatic dips and there's dramatic rises. It, it's, yeah. it's so hard to say how it's exactly playing out. Um, I just want to go back to the abortion conversation for a second and kind of get your ideas on this. So I put out a podcast called the most sexist podcast ever. And basically <laughs> it was just elaborating on the idea that the reason why abortion needs to be such a hot button topic is because it really mobilizes women, right? It's a very mm -hmm. emotional issue for women because you mm -hmm. can tell them that these men are controlling you mm -hmm. and they're controlling your bodily autonomy, right? And that, that gets people to their freaking core because you're basically these people understand this as culturally that a man is telling you what you can or cannot do with your physical mm -hmm. body right and this is so mm -hmm. deep in our culture that it's it's going to take years to kind of undo this mentality mm -hmm. um what do you think about the abortion debate when it comes to being a tool to get women to comply with certain desires um i, I mean i think that that is it's a lot of manipulation and I, I do think it, I agree with you. I think that it is very intentional and it is designed to victimize and mobilize women. I, I think that's a huge part of, because they want to get the, the vote. <laughs> I think that's a large part of it. It's a very politicized topic and it is a way to mobilize women to who otherwise might not be politically engaged yeah I'm sorry i think that's a real quick but um yep. women are actually the largest voting block in the united states i forgot to add that part on but that's part of the reason why i think it's such a pressing issue is because they're the largest voting block in the united states so yeah but there are a lot of women who otherwise might not be mobilized to right. vote mm -hmm. and this will engage a lot of women because they're being conditioned to be victims 
and being led to believe that somehow this is the evil patriarchy that is uh, oppressing them when really they took action and they were consensual in this action. There are consequences for this action. Um, I think it's also a way to, uh, again, divide and conquer because they really shut men out of this conversation. And men are, last time I checked, it requires a man and a woman to have a child. So um, I'm not a biologist, so don't quote me on this. <laughs> oh, but... you got it. Damn it, I was going to say it. <laughs> but uh, I, if I remember my uh, biology class correctly, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that is what I was taught. So I, I do believe that that is how that works. And therefore, I think that men are... 50% of the equation, and uh, therefore they should be absolutely involved in the conversation, but they don't want men involved in the conversation because they want to divide the family. This is about the, that's a large part of what eugen the gen eugenics movement was all about, the abortion movement was all about. Uh, they really want to divide the family and destroy the family. If you had parents, you know, the, the mother and the father having this conversation, I think you would have a lot less uh, single parents and it, you, you would actually see a lot more uh, stability in families because they would be, it would be a team having this discussion and preparing for how do they handle this. But they, I think that it is very intentional to shut men out of this conversation. That is what they want. And they want to create uh, these tensions and animosity and can convince people that, you know, Convince the women that the men hate them and just want to control them and manipulate them and, you know, convince the, the, the men that they shouldn't be involved in this and that women are just victims and then women can just railroad them, make all the decisions as if they had no part in it. You know, so they're, they're trying to uh, turn them against each other. And I think they largely do that with this argument that there's so many facets at play with this. I, I, I think it is. I think it's really evil. It's, you know, it's a very dark, sinister kind of thing when you really think about it. And that's not to say that there's never an example where, you know, you might have compassion for a person, but that's not what this bigger agenda is about. Mm -hmm. This agenda is not about, uh, you know, the one person who, you know, may have had a really complicated uh, case that that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about trying to really destroy the family trying to depopulate uh trying to mobilize mobilize a whole voting block over an issue that they don't they've, they've conflated I, I mean i mean i i've seen these men on the street interviews where you're talking to women who are arguing they're flat out arguing for the right to be able to kill their babies after it's born and how that's so liberating i'm really not sure what's liberating about murder i i don't really know how <laughs> they, they feel empowered by this because i i can guarantee most of those women if they were to really go through with that are going to the consequences later when they really think about what they've done or it's not going to benefit their lives. They're not going to be enhanced by that. They're certainly not going to be empowered by it. So. Yeah. And I think what's more liberating and kind of fulfilling for people in general is having a family and mm -hmm. enjoying your life and being able to say that you achieve this and that you raise great individuals. And obviously I can't speak to that personally, 
But, um, you know, I see the way my dad, my mom feel about how my brother and I and our siblings mm-hmm. kind of turned out and they seem pretty proud and yeah. not to say that I'm like a, you know, the greatest citizen in the world, but, um, I think at 28, I'm doing relatively. I think okay. you're doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I, absolutely. I, I, I really, I, I can it. see your parents would be very proud of you. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm beyond blessed to have both of them in my life. Um, so I, I think it's a big lie of the feminist movement to try and teach uh, women that they, sh- you know, they, they're better off having careers, they're better off staying yes. single, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, raising a family is not a, an honorable job, you know, uh, tending to the home is not honorable. I, and I really feel like it's, it's, it's actually a lie. This is not to say, I mean, I don't have children. I'm not married. This is not to say that I think that, you know, that's the life every woman needs to lead, uh, or live. But I, I will say that I, I really think it's a huge lie. And I, I personally feel like I fell for it. You know, I really focused on career when I was younger. I, I, I really did fall for it. I don't think I was ever like a feminist per se, right. but I, I fell into a lot of the propaganda that honestly, I think it's a psyop. And yes. I I think I would have been much happier having gotten married really young, having a big family, homeschooling all of them, <laughs> you know, that I think I would have really actually been happier. That's not to say that, you know, I'm not grateful for the things I'm doing now and for the life that I have. Uh, you know, I absolutely am. And I, I, I'm very blessed. That's, you know, it, it's not to be ungrateful for that. But I I can speak firsthand that I do believe that I fell for this lie. And it's, it's a big lie, <laughs> you know. And again, that's not because it's everyone's path. But I think so many women are being misled into thinking that, you know, having a family and tending to the home is not an honorable thing, that they should be, you know, somehow... Uh, and, th- and some there are some women who do both and they do wonderful, you know, they, 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 they're, they master both of them very well, but it, it is biology and it is kind of how our species propagates. So mm-hmm. it's a uh, kind of pretty important. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. And I've, I always say that I think the biggest lie is telling women they'd be happier working than, um, raising families and like you said, it's not to say that every woman needs to be in the kitchen cooking no. and raising kids, but, um, it seems like it's not even in discussion anymore. Like now people just have kids and they throw them in daycare and then they grow up. And it's really sad to see because not that my family's the perfect model, but I mean, I watched my mom and my dad and they've been divorced since I was five years old. Um, They took care of my dad's mom when she was dying. Right. Um, To see that, I feel like that shouldn't be like a weird sight. That should be something that everybody knows and that, you know, the grandparents can help take care of the children. The mother takes care of the children. It it should be a very tight collective and it's really intergenerational living. Yeah. Right. It's really shitty to see that this has been taken away from people. I, I think so too. And a lot of that really did change too with kids being uh, parents, having kids much later. So It made a lot of sense to have uh, intergenerational living when people were having children much younger because they were essentially kids themselves, right? right? And then their parents would, yeah. And so the grandparents would be very involved and very, and help out. And then it creates this uh, extended family that is essentially, uh, you know, a very close extension of the immediate family. Mm-hmm. And 
that lends itself very well to as the the grandparents get older and the parents are able to the parents and the grand the grandkids are able to uh, assist and you know return the favor and take care of them uh, and and it also i think in a lot i think this is also the misconception be, and it's a lie really because people think that it creates a burden but i think the burden is actually lessened because you already have this inter intergenerational foundation that has been built so it really becomes just more of a uh it's a system and, and i don't mean to uh you know uh dehumanize it that's not, not my intention but it, it really is because it's this interpersonal and interplay of how they live and so i i actually think the burden becomes decreased not increased as a result mm -hmm. yeah i i completely agree um, it's much harder i i think just to clarify my point like it's much harder to then try and recreate that when you've been all living apart and doing your separate right. thing, now you're immersed in your own lives and you've already, you become accustomed to your way of life and that everything gets disrupted to then go and take care of somebody else. So in that, in that situation, of course, it, you know, people think it's a burden. I'm not saying it is, but, you know, you're much more likely to perceive it that way than if you all were already had this intergenerational lifestyle that was already, um, laid out right and it's people will make fun of me and say mm -hmm. i'm like some insane social conservative for saying this but um i really do think that is the way i don't want to say forward but i think that's the best way for people to be happy and to survive because mm -hmm. you know we saw in 2020 grandparents were crushed when they couldn't go see their grandkids and people were denied going to see funerals for people yep. i mean that is as evil as evil gets when you cannot go see um, people who really, they don't have anything else to look you know, look forward to other than seeing their kids and their grandkids when it yeah. comes to the end of their life. And then they that was taken away from them. Like think about Absolutely. how many people just died alone. And I can't imagine anything worse than yeah. that. It's awful. Really awful. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. It, it, that was really just gut-wrenching. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, let's kind of end it here on a, a bright note. Courtney, what do you do to kind of de-load and uh, de-stress? Because I had a buddy of mine who uh, tagged me on Twitter. Um, he said he was having some back pains. And um, I told him, well, why don't you try like a de-load week of training? Because, I mean, I lift pretty hard. And I don't know if I injured my back, but um, my back was feeling pretty screwed up. Oh, no. I, I'm kind of reassessing the way I deadlift and how much I deadlift. And it feels pretty good now, but I'd mm -hmm. take a couple of weeks off. But uh, basically, I just kind of told him, like, look, why don't you just take a week where you go nice and easy? And then, like, he tagged me in the next week, and he was like, oh, my God, I feel amazing next to you. And um, basically, the way I look at it is like, hey, sometimes you kind of have to relax and cool off so that we can spring forward with that much more effort. And that seemed to kind of be his situation. I know after yeah. I take a little bit of time off, it's the same way. So. What do you do to kind of de-stress and de-load and relax? Well, I feel like they're different questions. I'll I'll answer the de-load first. Sure. I used to be like a go hard all the time, but really I prefer like really I, I do this because I really love it and I want to be able to do this till I'm 90, you know, I want to be able to move and, uh, you know, be able to move at a pretty high level. So I, I, I'm not focused on like maxing out these days. And like, that's just because avoiding injury is 
pretty good for me. I, I, I prefer it. So I, so I really don't do as much of that anymore. And the other thing that I do is, so it's twofold. One, I mean, I really listen to my body. So there are times where I'm really tired. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull back. You know, I just, this isn't the time for me to redline. And if I'm feeling that way, I will just honor that. But I, I travel a lot and I do, you know, a lot of these conferences and that's very high stress because they're not vacations, you know? I mean, I'm grateful that I can do them and I meet wonderful people and I really enjoy it, but they're not vacations. And sometimes I will be able to drop into gyms at those times, but sometimes you're, you're in conferences all day. You really can't. So I'll treat those as like deload kind of times. When I, when I know I'm going to have that, oftentimes I'll go really hard before. I'll know I'll be really sore. And then I'll have a few days where, you know, and it might even be a week where I, I maybe only get in, you know, one or two workouts and maybe it's more just like a lot of walking or whatever, mm -hmm. something that's really just a recovery week. Uh, and if I don't get that, the other thing that I do, and th this is really more for the women who are listening, but I really pay attention to my cycle and the right before my cycle, I'm the weakest. I'm definitely more tired, but I'm also weaker. Like my numbers actually go down. If I were to try and do max lifts, like the you know second week of my cycle and then the right before my period, it's the numbers are drastically going to be different, even if I've been consistently training. So I honor that and I, you know, take that as time to deload a bit. You know, that doesn't mean that I don't train. It means that I don't necessarily redline those days. I don't try to hit max numbers because that's just going to be disappointing if I can't do it. Uh, and I'll be like, wait, what? And actually when I didn't know, because I think a lot of women don't know, you know, they don't work with their cycle. Most women are never taught to do that. I think it's becoming more common now, but you know, you're, you are actually stronger at certain parts of your cycle and certain parts of your cycle are much more conducive to more of a cardio load or, a, a, you know, more high volume versus a uh, higher strength or higher intensity, so forth, so on. So uh, I, you know, I didn't know. And I'd be like, what happened? There's no way I'm like this much weaker, you know, <laughs> like, why can't I lift this? So I, I think that that's, you know, just knowing that and paying attention to that and honoring that. But in terms of like de-stressing and, uh, you know, relaxing, I'm not great at it. <laughs> um, I'm honestly not, you know, I love my aerial, which I'm going to be performing on October 15th. I'm going to be doing a speech and a performance. I'm actually speaking for a, an event, but I don't have all the details of that. And that is going to be, uh, I believe it's the 4th to the 6th. It's a women's retreat that I'm going to be speaking at and possibly performing there as well. So I have a couple of those events. I really love that. That's kind of, it's still movement. It can be taxing, but it's much more kind of creative play. So that's a way of kind of uh, de-stressing for me, uh, spending time with people I enjoy and, you know, kind of getting away in that, in that regard. Or sometimes I, a lot of times, if I don't have that kind of luxury to do, you know, an actual, you know, I don't know, like uh, a premeditated kind of de-stress, if you will, then I, I, I'm a big fan of walks. I do that yeah. a lot. So, right. <laughs> if just get out. And I do that actually very often. So I, I'm at the desk a lot. I do a lot of sitting here podcasting. I'm at yeah. a screen. I read a lot. I read. I listen to a lot. So 
sometimes it, that, that's just really de-stressing. I just get outside and go out and even, you know, hopefully if the sun is shining, but even if it's not, it's actually really restorative just to be outside. And even if you can't be in, you know, nature, nature, just to see the trees and the flowers and, you know, the nature, the, the creatures that are out and about, that, that's very relaxing for me and it clears my head. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you hit on something really, really important right there. Um, I think people underestimate just how important just getting outside for a walk is. And it doesn't have to be long, but like if I don't have that every single morning and I, I couldn't tell you the last time I missed a walk, my dog just came running in. Yeah, conveniently when I say that. Um, every single morning I walk um, two out of the three of them. The one's real old, so she doesn't walk that much. But um, uh, my day is completely thrown off and I do it post-meal to help with blood sugar control and then digestion mm. issues. Or um, it helps just my food digest. Um, I, it's like my me time. Same with my resistance yeah. training. That's my me time. Like it, totally. it's my time to just turn on whatever music I want to listen to. And yep. like, sometimes I try to listen to podcasts while working out. But I do. I, I, I can't. Not while I work out, but while I walk, I listen to Oh yeah, to no, 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 while, while yeah. I walk. But like, if I'm working out, then it's like all my friends? mental. Oh, no, of course. All right, guys. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled with the uh, show's new sponsor. Um, I am now sponsored and uh, have an affiliate through LMNT Electrolytes. Um, I have used these electrolytes for years. Um, back when I used to do a lot of fasting, in fact, I used to drink, sometimes I want to say up to seven a day, seven little packets. So um, the packets are full of all the electrolytes that you need to perform and hydrate yourself properly. Um you need sodium for pretty much every single function in your body, despite what um, a lot of people may tell you. Um, sodium doesn't actually cause a lot of the issues that uh, people kind of would have you believe. So um, just real quick to give you a little bit of facts. Um, you don't need sugar to hydrate. Electrolytes and water don't require glucose to pass through the gut. The average American consumes over 60 pounds of sugar a year. And um, when it comes to athletic performance, um, you can actually lose up to seven grams per day in hot climate. So um, make sure you click on the affiliate link below to get all your hydration needs. And like I said, I'm super stoked to have these guys um, teamed up with the podcast and uh, just make sure you get your uh, electrolytes through Element. All right, guys, thanks. Right at the end. You froze again. Mm. Um, right, yeah, all my mental focus when it comes to working out has to be on the lifts and it has yeah. to be right then and there and whatever music is going to get me you know whatever music i'm feeling that day i it, it's got to be on i can't do podcasts and workouts just because it, it throws me off so, i don't yeah i get distracted i agree yeah, yeah i feel like i'm not giving enough respect to the people i'm listening to and i can't absorb the ideas properly sure um, so yeah we've been shooting the shit for about an hour and a half now i want to say I, huh? I always enjoy talking to you it's, likewise uh, it goes by really fast. And, um, you know, this, uh, your third appearance on here, I, we did a live together. It's cool we to did. see you link up with Tommy as well, because he's, uh, he's yeah. a great guy. And uh, he Dave is, I have to bring him on. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Tommy's just like one of the best people in the world. Him and I talk all the time. Yeah. So, he's um, awesome. Really, yeah. really sweet. And so versed. Yeah. He's, he's very well read. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, the worlds are kind of coming together here and hopefully, uh, more people, I guess, from my sphere reach out to you because there's somebody in particular that I think that you would connect really well with. And I'll see if uh, I can maybe either get you two on together. Or you two could set something up because I think, uh, 
you two have a very, very interesting perspective that you kind of run along the same lines. I think it would be okay. really cool. So, cool. Uh, Courtney, anything uh, you got cool going on or um, anything coming up in the future you want to tell people about? Yeah, well, I, I w- will have the details soon, but I'm definitely going to be performing October 15th. And uh, I'm actually in talks. I mean, it's a little bit preliminary, but I, it, we might partner up. Jay Dyer and I might do both do speech. So uh, that'll be October 15th if anybody is in the Middle Tennessee area. Um, yeah, so I have that. And then I have a couple of other events that I'll be speaking and performing in. So stay tuned into my social media, what whatever I have that you can go to. What's left of it? <laughs> and you'll you'll find. But my website, CourtneyTurner.com, is Courtney Turner. Should be out to it should be out next week. Uh, and that'll kind of be a main hub for everything. And uh, I do have a telegram channel, though so I'm gonna probably be a lot more active on there since I don't know what it will be for me on Twitter. I might see if I can, you know, resurface something, but I am on Truth Social. I am on Instagram. I'm pretty active on Instagram, but I think I have to be a little bit careful about what I can say and not say. But my stories, I tend to share quite a bit. So anybody who, uh, and if you're on my Facebook, you can see those stories. They go up to Facebook as well. And uh, I don't know what else is there. Um, yeah, so find me at the Courtney Turner Podcast, and uh, I'm pretty much everywhere except for YouTube. <laughs> so. Well, YouTube and Twitter now, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you're you're definitely sorely missed. <laughs> but Thank you. I'm glad I could at least have you here right now. Um, yeah, if you don't have any other uh, closing thoughts, we'll uh, close her up. Yeah, no, thank you so much for being here. I, I always enjoy talking with you. We'll, we'll have to do it again. You'll have to come back on my show. Of course. Well, your uh, invitation is always open here, and... Um, you know, like I said, I always enjoy talking to you. So, um, you know, I guess we'll close yeah. her out then. All right. All right. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.